Hello, it's Adam Ragusea, and here's how I've failed recently. I was filming a recipe where I cooked a steak in a pan, and then I took the steak out to let it rest, and while it rested, I cooked some dark leafy greens in the residual heat and the residual meatiness of said pan. That's one of my favorite techniques, because big pieces of meat need to rest before you eat them, but vegetables do not. So you cook your vegetables while the meat is resting, ideally in the same pan. So there's only one dirty dish, and your meat and vegetables will both be perfect at the exact same moment, plus your vegetables will taste like meat, which is all I've really ever wanted in life. Anyway, that's what I was doing. I was frying the curly purple kale in the meaty pan, and I didn't have quite enough liquid in the pan, so the garlic and the ginger that I also had in there was starting to burn on the bottom, so I had to act real fast, which normally wouldn't be a problem, except I was also trying to film all of this with my camera and my lights and all of that business. And anyway, I did not have enough time to reposition my camera for a certain shot, and the resulting footage is at this really extreme angle. Like, I believe in film school, they would call it a Dutch angle. The horizon is at like a 40 degree incline in this shot. And I normally fix slight leveling problems in post-production. I shoot in a higher resolution than my publishing resolution, and that allows me to zoom in in on footage in post-production. And when you zoom in, you can rotate the footage to make it level. But here, the incline was just too extreme. I would have had to zoom in way too much in order to get it level, and my shots are generally too tight as it is. So I just had to leave this crazy, hugely inclined shot in the finished video. I'm hoping that viewers think that this is intentional, an intentional artistic choice on my part. It's what I would call in my own head an MTV angle, because back when I was an impressionable youth watching MTV, back when it was still a music channel, all of the VJ interstitials between the music videos were shot at these really extreme wonky angles because this isn't your parents' basic cable channel, man, where everything is straight and level, man. This is MTV. And our camera operators lean to the side because that's what the kids today want to see. Yeah, I'm hoping that you will think that the kale shot was an MTV angle, but it wasn't. It was just a mistake. And I think that we should all be in the habit of confessing more of our mistakes to each other so that we can see that we are not the only miserable failure in town. Everybody else is dying inside all the time, too. It's not just you. So I'll be talking about my failures at the beginning of this, the new Adam Ragusea podcast, which is sponsored today by Emi, the delicious instant ramen that is not terrible for me. I love this stuff. The noodles are made chiefly of pumpkin seed protein rather than wheat. They do use wheat gluten, so the noodles still chew like real noodles, but there's a whopping 21 grams of protein, lots of fiber, and only six net carbs, and surprisingly low sodium. The flavors of Emi are incredibly tasty and very meaty, despite not having any animal products at all in them. There's no shrimp in the Tom Yum shrimp. There's no chicken in this one. The meaty flavor comes from yeast extract, which is an amazing underrated vegan ingredient that I love, and I'm not even vegan. You cook it just like any instant ramen, and it's ready to slurp in seven minutes. You got to try it. Go to emieats.com slash Ragusea. Use my code Ragusea for $5 off your order. Emi is spelled I-M-M-I, emieats.com slash Ragusea. There's also a link in the episode description here. Use code Ragusea for $5 off a variety pack today. If you don't love it, they'll give you your money back within 30 days of purchase, but I think you'll love it. Thank you, Emi. Personality, subject, and moment. 
These are the ingredients of a hit show. Podcast, YouTube series, TV show, whatever. Personality, subject, and moment. A personality whom people like and want to spend time with. Subject matter that they're really interested in. And that personality bringing you that subject at exactly the right moment when you want it. The right moment in your life, in your day, in history, whatever. Personality, subject, and moment. These are the ingredients of a hit. And that is not my observation. It is the observation of a fellow named Eric Newsom, who was a programming executive at NPR for a while, National Public Radio here in the States. He was involved in the creation of hit podcasts like TED Radio Hour and Invisibilia. Eric left that job to go work at Audible for a while, and now I believe he's consulting, and he has a book that I recommend. It's called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling by Eric Newsom. Eric Newsom was still a vice president at NPR back when I hosted and produced a podcast called The Pub. The Pub is still on all the podcasting apps if you want to go listen to it, but you probably don't. It was a show that I made for a nonprofit newspaper called Current, which itself is a trade paper for people who work in the American public broadcasting industry. So people who work in viewer and listener supported TV and radio here in the States, the American equivalent of the BBC. People who work there, this paper is the niche trade publication for them. And I made a podcast for that paper. So I made a podcast that was for people working in public broadcasting, and it was called The Pub. Sounds thrilling, I know. Anyway, the weird thing was the pub got kind of popular for a while. Not by the standards of success by which anything in the real world would be judged, but for something in a highly niche market, it did surprisingly well. I did the pub for a few years, and Eric Newsom, when he was at NPR, was one of the figures whom I covered as a journalist. I reported on him and what he was doing at NPR on my show, The Pub. So that is how he and I came to know each other a little. I got kind of tired of doing The Pub after a few years. My interest simply shifted away from uh, public radio and TV, and I felt that I'd said everything of value that I had to say in that world. I was eager to pass the mic to somebody else. And so as I was thinking about quitting the show, I called up Eric Newsom for career advice, which I probably shouldn't have done because it was a bit of a conflict of interest, given that I was supposed to be covering him. But I think that he had actually left NPR by then, and, and I knew that I was leaving the pub, so I figured, hey, what the hell? Anyway, I called Eric Newsom for career advice. I told him that I was thinking about leaving the pub, and I asked him what he thought my next career move should be. And that's when he dropped that whole personality, subject, and moment thing on me. I'm not sure if those were the particular words that he used, but that was the essence of it. A hit show results from the confluence of those three things. And I realized immediately the subtext of what he was telling me. Eric was saying implicitly, Adam, if you leave your modest hit of a podcast, The Pub, don't be sure that your audience will follow you. Sure, they like you. If they didn't like you, they wouldn't be listening. But you are only one leg of the stool. They like you talking about the thing they care about at this particular moment when they want to hear you talking about that thing they care about. They don't like you. They like the show, which is at most only one third you. 
All of that Eric Newsom said to me without actually saying it. So, Eric, if you're listening, please forgive me for misquoting your non-quotation, if I did misquote it. But I don't think I did. I think that's what you were telling me. And it scared me. It made me less confident leaping into the next phase of my career, which eventually led to where I'm at now, which is nearly 2 million subscribers on YouTube, nearly 400 million total views of my videos, videos where I'm talking about food, not radio or journalism. And it's far more successful than any possibility I had ever seriously hoped for. And why is it successful? Why do people like the videos I post? I can only assume it's a combination of personality, subject, and moment. Change one of those three variables, and maybe that wheel would not have dug in and found its traction. I think there's probably a lot of wisdom there for people who have been somewhat successful at anything, not just making shows. I certainly knew guys in high school who were super popular and successful at being a dude in high school, and they probably assumed that they would go on being popular and successful after high school, and they definitely did not. Because their success was a combination of who they were, what they were doing, and when they were doing it. Their personality stayed the same, the who remained after high school, but the what and the when changed, and the winning formula was broken. It's very natural to think that when you succeed at something, you are the reason for that success. And surely you were part of the recipe, but there were many, many other ingredients. If I examine my own success on YouTube, I could list a lot of ingredients that have nothing to do with me. Sure, maybe some people like me, but what they like even more is pizza. And in fact, they knew and liked pizza long before they'd ever seen my name and even longer before they'd learned how to pronounce it. It's Ragusia, by the way. My first big hit recipe video did not go viral because of me. Nobody knew or cared about who I was then. It went viral because people like pizza. People like New York style pizza and they wanted to learn how to make it at home. Why did they click on my video about pizza instead of all of the others that were out there? Well, one reason is British imperialism. British imperialism is why English is the global lingua franca. It's the number three language in the world by number of native speakers, a very distant three after Spanish and the big one, which is, of course is Mandarin. But English is by far the top second language in the world. English is the number one, number two. English is the language of international business and scholarship and transportation and all kinds of other things. And that is because of British imperialism. It's the legacy of that. I am neither British nor an imperialist, or at least I try not to be an imperialist. But thanks to the lottery of birth... I grew up in a former British colony, the United States, and thus the global second language is my first language. Thus, I publish videos in comfortable, confident native English, and that right there gave me access to an enormous global market of particularly educated, affluent viewers whom my sponsors want to reach. That is an unearned advantage that I had over the 95% of humanity whose native language is not English. And sure, there are almost 400 million other native English speakers in this world, and not all of them have very successful YouTube channels yet. So there are other ingredients to my success, but the legacy of British imperialism is a big one. 
And that's one that has nothing to do with my magnetic force of personality or my cooking. All of this is to explain how nervous I am right now, doing episode one of the new Ragusia pod. I don't assume at all, not for a second, that lots of people will listen to this show. Just because lots of people consume another thing I do does not guarantee that they will be hungry for this, whatever I plan to do here. Perhaps I keep shoehorning food metaphors into this little essay because I'm aware that food is the subject that brought you and I together. Food is the one that brought me to the dance. I think I just mixed metaphors in a sentence about metaphors, and I can't decide if that's excellent writing or the exact opposite of that. Anyway, in an effort to make the new Ragusia pod successful, I will now implore you to do a few things, should you wish for this to become successful and therefore go on existing as a thing that you can listen to every Saturday, which is the tentative release schedule, by the way, every Saturday. If you're watching this on YouTube, do me a solid and subscribe to the podcast feed on your podcatcher of choice. I use Overcast, but... Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever. This show should be on all of them at this point. The Adam Ragusea Podcast. Search for it and subscribe. I will put some links in the description of the YouTube video version of this episode. Head down there and click on one of those to subscribe to the podcast. I will be cross-posting the episodes to my main YouTube channel for now, but I've not yet decided if that's going to be a permanent arrangement. I have decided that I'm going to do a lot more audience Q&A here on the pod. Ask me questions about food, life, how to break up with your boyfriend, how to make a pie, whatever you want. My answers might be trash, but at least they'll be entertaining, I hope. I will respond here to the questions that I find interesting. And where can you leave your questions? Well, for now, I'm going to say go on over to the Apple Podcasts app. Leave a rating and a review. Hopefully a positive one. And put your question in the review. Say something about the show. Actually review it, please. And then ask your question in your review. For now, that is where I will gather questions to answer in the Apple Podcast reviews for this, the Adam Ragusea Podcast. I'm still not really sure what this show will be, but I'm sure that I will talk to other humans on it from time to time. And now is one of those times. The creator is behind the hottest, hot new YouTube channel about Middle Eastern food. They are coming up next. Today's episode of the Ragusia Pod is sponsored by Geology, Men's Skin Care Reinvented. Geology is a multi-award winning company that creates simple and effective skincare routines customized for you, built around a handful of powerful, proven ingredients that are long trusted by dermatologists, things like retinol and kojic acid that have actual science behind them. You take a quick diagnostic quiz and Geology's dermatologists will design a regimen for you. Products that can help you fight acne, Not really a problem for me at my age, but I am definitely all about preventing wrinkles as I get older, uh, reducing oiliness. I am Italian after all, and I definitely get dark circles under my eyes from working too much, and I find that the eye cream really does help with that. I really like that this 
and the morning and the evening creams are completely unscented. They have like no smell whatsoever. The one product that does have a smell is the Daily Face Wash, which has this absolutely delightful, invigorating citrus smell that I really enjoy. I appreciate how noob-friendly this whole regimen is. They tell me exactly what to do to make handsome a habit, as they say. I, don't, I know nothing about this stuff. My wife is a massive skincare maven. I, I am not, and I appreciate the really, really basic instructions you get with these products. You can get a five-piece trial set, just like mine here, valued at 50 bucks. You can get this up to 50% off for a 30-day trial. Just go to geology.com slash ragusea. Geology is spelled with an I-E at the end. G-E-O-L-O-G-I-E dot com slash ragusea. Take their free skincare quiz and save up to 50% on your 30-day trial. My link is in the episode description, geology.com slash ragusea. Thank you, geology. So Middle Eats is a YouTube channel that is exactly what it sounds like, which is how you know it's got a great title. Nicely done, Salma and Obi. If you watch any of their recipes, you probably know Obi. Obi is the one who generally appears on camera on Middle Eats. But his wife, Salma, does almost all the research and the recipe development. I adore Middle Eastern food, and I love these too. You should subscribe to Middle Eats on YouTube right now. Who are Obi and Salma? Um, we're both Egyptian, right? Yep. And I'm a scientist. Obi's a... I'm a software engineer. <laughs> um, basically, we started doing this uh, about... Uh, start of the pandemic, really, we just wanted a way to um, share the food that we usually cook for our friends with them so they can make it themselves at home. And then it kind of evolved from that to, well, let's just teach everyone how to do Middle Eastern food. Um, yeah. What's your favorite thing that you make? Oh, <laughs> we've got very one. different favorite dishes. <laughs> so my favorite dish is an Egyptian dish, which is rice with crispy bread vinegar and garlic sauce, tomato sauce, and then lamb, and there's lamb stock on it. So it's rice with bread, which is a bit weird, but it's super flavorful. I can't choose what I like. That's a you very tough to. one. You have to. You have no choice. That is a very tough one. Should have prepared uh, us for this. Do you know I would like? Oh, falafel. Definitely falafel. Yes. Uh, but the Egyptian one. What makes an Egyptian falafel different? Um, so an Egyptian falafel is made with fava beans, split fava beans instead of uh, hummus. And uh, sorry, chickpeas, because chickpea, uh, hummus is chickpeas in Arabic. Um, but yeah, that's the Egyptian one, basically. Wow. And it tastes very, very, very different. Yeah, and it's got like tons of greens in there as well. And then it's covered in coriander and sesame. So when you bite into it, you get loads of crunch, loads of spice, but then a super fluffy interior. It's a whipped batter, basically. It's not, it's not like a dense falafel. It's very, very airy. That sounds like a falafel that would not just end my day, which is what they normally do to me. Um, I mean, oh, no, they would. Fava beans, oh, yeah. fava beans can be pretty killer. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because like every time, you know, I, 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 I don't know about you guys, but like when I have meals that are just really, really heavy on, on, on fats, on lipids, like I just get all kinds of horrible stomach problems. And like, and every time I complain about this on the internet, I, I get I seem to get somebody from Egypt saying, Oh, don't ever come here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That is true. Yeah. That is like true. It, the, the the running joke in Egypt is that people are so unproductive because the first thing they eat in the morning is fava beans and they gotta take a nap straight away. So <laughs> that explains the state of the economy there. <laughs> um I wanted to talk to you guys about P Day. 
Oh. Um, which for nice. people who don't know is this Turkish pizza-like thing, which I completely fell in love with when I was going to school um, in Bloomington, Indiana. And there's a restaurant on 4th Street called Anatolia that I ho- totally recommend everybody go to if you're in southern Indiana. And uh, yeah, P-Day, what, what are P-Day? What is P-Day? Um, is P-Day plural? What is P-Day? P-Day, I think it is plural, yeah. It can, maybe, I don't speak Turkish. So P-Day is a Turkish thing, but it is also, um, you can find it in like the southern Caucasus. Um, so like you get it in Georgia, you get it in Armenia, you get it in um, other countries in that area. And basically it's a dough boat with um, cheese and other toppings in there. The famous one you might know is Georgian kachapuri, or I think that's how you pronounce it, which has an egg in there and loads of cheese. But then the P- the Turkish ones, you know, you'll get some of them with cheese and meat, some of them with vegetables, some of feta cheese, mm. spinach, all sorts of things, really. It's kind of like what's a in primitive the, What's cheese. in the dough? Ooh, what's in the dough? Flour, water or milk, depends on what you want to use. And um, just a bit of salt, it's yeasted as well. And a tiny bit of sugar. I forget in your video if y'all did yogurt in yours. Did you? No, I think we, didn't. we did. I think we did milk. I think we did milk in ours. Um, but there were so many different recipes from all over the region. So when we were researching, we tried to find what most people are doing and approximate, you know, a recipe from that. Um, the yogurt ones look fantastic and they look super soft, but milk worked perfectly for us, so we didn't bother with yogurt. Yeah, the thing with yogurt, because I love I love making flatbreads with yogurt, but the thing is, is that if you use too much, the pH goes too low, and it messes with the gluten, and you can't you can't mm. it just loses its extensibility. It just starts to tear. Um, uh-huh. And I wondered if I was this is purely self serving. I was wondering if y'all had figured out a solution to that problem. I mean, yeah. that's the first time I come across that. But this is oh, really? Salma, the scientist, so she'll she will literally probably. What kind of scientist, Salma? Uh, biomedical sciences. So um, I look into the gut microbiome. Really? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Get more specific. Uh, so it's so right now my work is purely computational, just because of the pandemic and everything. So I didn't have much access to the lab, but I'm specifically studying the um, gut microbial signature of um, in ulcerative colitis. It's a form of um, inflammatory bowel disease. Yeah. So based on that, so based on research that's already been known, we know that um, most diseases have different gut microbial signatures. And um, based on um, if we try and restore the balance in the gut microbial communities, then we could probably alleviate some symptoms or things like that. So that's what we're trying to figure out here. Wow. So do you do you buy the hype that like everything about how we feel is coming from our guts? Actually, I am starting to buy into that because <laughs> everything seems to be connected one way or another to the gut. But and is it being caused by our gut microbiome is our, or is our gut mi- microbiome simply a place where we see um signs of it, right? It's manifesting signs there, but it's not, our health is not emanating from this general area down here. I mean, it is because your immunity actually depends or your immune system is also trained, like it works together with the gut microbes. So some things you can't digest on your own and the bacteria does that for you. And that's why the whole 
fibrous thing are important when you cut down when you stop eating fibers and you kill off the good bacteria that survive on these kind of things and when you do that then your body doesn't get the right amount of metabolites it needs and the other bacteria start like eating through the lining of your gut and that's when inflammation happens and things like that wow. so it's all it's all connected can i ask you the stupidest gut health question I've always had, but been embarrassed to ask. It's not going to be stupid than my ones. <laughs> there's no stupid question. I would say there's never a stupid question. <laughs> Sometimes there is. Um, okay. So beans and similar things that contain, you know, indigestible oligosaccharides and that kind of stuff, right? Like, yeah. so they always say that like, you know, if you start eating beans um, or cruciferous vegetables or whatever, and like you're having lots of gas like keep eating them and eventually your your system will adjust. But what sense does that make? Because what causes the gas is like the the buggies in your gut that are eating the starches that you cannot, or, or sugars or whatever, um, hydrocarbons that you cannot digest yourself. So if you feed them more, aren't you going to grow that colony in there and thereby they'll be eating even more and creating even more gas? That seems like it would be, this seems counterintuitive to me. It, it does. So it, it really depends on the... I would say the starter culture that you have in your gut. So it different. <laughs> it's so it's your it, personal sourdough. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I oh, mean, that's that's an image. Thanks, Opie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I I guess it's different depending on each person and the like the community you already have in your gut. And there's so much that we're still learning about this. So nothing is is exactly understood like there, there there is no exact equation because there is like it differs the gut microbes differ from one person to another it does vary the main umbrella like there are a bunch of microbes that we know the like they fit under a big umbrella but then there are few species that differ not few but quite a lot and it's different between like a healthy gut microbiome can differ between one person to another but there are some microbes that really stand out or are associated with diseases. So there's still a lot to learn about this. So one thing that could be healthy for another, for one person would be unhealthy for another. Well, given, yeah. given the, the preliminary state of the research, is, is there anything that you guys do knowing what you know or knowing what Salma knows differently in terms of your own diet? I mean, I'll step back because I'm not exactly considered a healthy <laughs> prime example of a human. So I'll step back. But I think, um, Samuel, you were telling me before that there are a lot of bacteria which work in collaboration with each other. So one bacteria might, I mean, yeah. I, I don't say this is how it works, but um, one bacteria might produce gas and process something, but another bacteria might feed off of that gas or something else. Yeah. They have a symbiotic relationship. So Whoa. it may be, and it's this is fibers. completely me making things up, no. but it may be that's what we that, do here. It's all right. um, yeah, <laughs> make up science live. Um, it may be that the gas being produced is actually the food for another kind of bacteria. And once you build up enough of that, you know, enough of the microbes that can make the gas, you build up a colony of the other bacteria. I have no clue, well, but it's the, it's the short chain fatty acids. So, <laughs> so fiber, fiber is like the most important thing. And what people tend to forget, uh, people tend to think fiber equals greens. So they just focus on having veggies, but mm -hmm. they don't really um, know that the most sort like very um, wheats and um, beans and legumes and things like that have 
a very, very high amount of fibers. And it's fibers that fuel the microbiome, the, the bacteria in the gut. And you have a certain group of, group of bacteria that break down these fibers into um, what we call short chain fatty acids. And then um, they break, the, break them down. Um, these short chain fatty acids are then broken down further but by another group of bacteria that then um, produce butyrate, which is a very important uh, short chain fatty acid, which is required for you know, just keeping the energy up yeah. in the gut and feeding the bacteria and keeping it all good and healthy. Because otherwise, the when they starve, when you don't give, uh, when you don't have fibers, then they start eating the lining that protects your gut. And um, so I've been trying at least to eat a lot of fibers. <laughs> you know, I used to go all no carb, low carb, all that stuff, and then I realized, oh, that is pretty bad. <laughs> that is not good. That is probably really upsetting my gut. So, huh. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. So yeah. YouTube. Yes. Cool. You guys, first of all, you, you, you got to do a video about this stuff. You got to start getting in some gut health. I'd be fascinated to learn oh, about man. that. But yeah. I, I guess I shouldn't give you any tips because your channel is doing tremendously well as it is. Yeah, it's uh, doing it's doing pretty good. I think um, we're 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 currently at about one hundred eighty five thousand subscribers. Which I th the metric isn't subscribers that you really care about. It's more about the reach and like the views and stuff you get. So, yeah, because um, I always tell people that because subscribers are cumulative. A lot, a lot yeah. of people don't will subscribe to something and then like never watch anything there again. Yeah, definitely. So it's more an indication of how long you've been big rather than of how big you are. Mm -hmm. And but you guys are getting great views. I mean, have you thought about quitting your jobs? Or you both have oh. like meaningful, important jobs, though. I mean, as long as my as long as my boss doesn't see this, yes, I've definitely <laughs> thought about quitting my job. I think about it. 50 times a day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, we would love to do this full time, or at least I would. Um, you know, it's the kind of thing that I think adds a lot more value than me just sitting in my day job. I mean, I'm a software engineer, but other than that, it's not that interesting. It's not that exciting. Um, whereas this food, like you get messages from people who are like, you're reconnecting me with my culture, or I visited this place with, you know, like my, my, my grandma who passed away or, or this relative used to make something for me, or I never knew, you know, I'm, ad I'm adopted from this country or that country and I haven't tried the food and you're helping me try it. And I think that to me is just amazing. It's better than any job out there. But there's a downside too, right? I mean, to me, like for a guy like me, like if you tell me that, you know, yeah, you're Egyptian, but this is how, you know, the Turks make pide, I'm going to be like, sure. Okay, fine. But like, I, I bet that with, in terms of the intra Middle Eastern food politics yeah. of it, that like, yeah. you probably get some people saying that is not how we do it. And how dare you misrepresent, <laughs> oh, yeah. misrepresent oh, yeah. my culture. Oh, I yeah. mean, we get that from Egyptians actually. So, <laughs> and, and we're Egyptians, but it's just, it, some, it's very hard for uh, some people to understand that different houses do things or different families do recipes differently. Um, I don't know why, but yeah, I mean, it does happen all the time. Yeah. Well, I think maybe people make an assumption that, you know, if they, they look at you and they know that you are, they, they feel that you are removed from their culture. They see you as an outsider, right? Yeah. And therefore, if they see you doing something different with the food, they assume that the reason for that difference is because you are an outsider. And yeah. that's yeah. not always the case, right? Like, because I'll run into this all the time where, you know, I will very cautiously, like I just did this, uh, um, 
uh, just, uh, the uh, uh, paella recipe. Yes. And yeah. I knew it was, I was asking for trouble, right? <laughs> um, so I just researched the shit out of it, right? Like I just, I mean, and I and I, 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 I can read Spanish, so I was like looking at all kinds of traditional recipes in their native language, and uh, and uh, yeah, but people still they they'll say like, oh, that's not how we do it. And the thing is, mm-hmm. and I have to, what I I have to hold my tongue, but what I what I want to say is like actually. A lot of you do do it that way. And I have the primary source documentation (laughs) to back up that claim. So the reason that I'm doing it differently might not be because I'm an outsider. It might just be because there's like different ways of doing it. But definitely Mm -hmm. people in your neighborhood are doing this right now, dude. And I'm sorry that I seem to know that and you don't. That seems wrong, which is why I'm not going to say it out loud. But it's true. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, 100%. That is right. I mean, that is right. For every single recipe that we do, Selma does a ton of research. We're talking about like a good 10 to 15 hours just of thorough watching videos, looking at blog posts, understanding, reading recipe books, looking through all sorts of things. And we're talking about like, for example, we did a Moroccan breakfast recently. Selma had to watch a good, I don't know, 10 hours of people making bread and they don't even speak um, regular Arabic or like normal Arabic in Morocco. They speak a blend of Arabic and French. So it's really hard to figure these things out. And of course we got people saying, oh yeah, you never use butter. You never use oil. But then you get people whether in the videos themselves are like, no, no, use oil, use butter. And in the end of the day, every single person does it differently. And what you'll find in even countries like Egypt, even countries like Morocco the vast majority of families, they probably won't even make most of the food from scratch. So we do everything on the channel from scratch as much as possible um, so that anyone can make it. And we do it a way that works well. But in Egypt, you'll find most people, oh yeah, they get this pre-rolled, they get this pre-breaded, they get this pre-fried, and they just heat it up because, you know, modern convenience, right? That's how things are done. Um, And most of the differences you find are either like from different villages, different towns, different cities, Mm -hmm. maybe even different streets. And... In some places, the difference between identity of, you know, this this village's version of the dish versus this one, it's lost and it all kind of like amalgamates into one recipe. And in other places, it's so different. Like um, in, in some countries, you know, in the Levant, you will literally get one village or one road will do it this way and this other road will do it this other way. And we got to try to find like, a, like yeah. something that meets in the middle to not upset people. But it's really nice when people come back and they're like, oh, yeah my mom does it the same way as you or, you know, like my grandma does it and it tastes just like my grandma's one or things like that. And I think that's really cool. It's like in the end of the day, some people might be like, yeah, this is not correct, but does it taste right? Does it taste authentic? I think that's the cool part. Yeah, but that that's what happened with the Fesenjun, the Iranian dish, because it's really hard to do uh, research for Iranian recipes because most of the videos are in Persian and, you know, there's no way I can understand that and they're not translated. Um, and we had, and like all the, um, videos that I had seen that were in English, just something seemed so off about them. You know, there was just so much pomegranate molasses. Like, why would or you too put- little. No, 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 no. So much. There was like a cup and a half of like pomegranate molasses. I was like, just, that is just diabetes yeah. in a, you yeah. know, in a dish. And, um, and I actually like spoke to one of my coworkers and uh, I asked her, she's, she's half Iranian. And I was like, does this seem right to you? Because it does not seem right to me. And she's like, no, that's not how you are completely right. Uh, you're, you know, my grandma does it that way. And she only adds like three tablespoons at most. And it's, it's, it's things like that. So 
it's just so difficult to yeah. to find the right balance. Uh, but when you do in the end, it, it feels good. And then when so that epic. recipe went out, um, we got a lot of comments from, from a lot of Persians saying like, yeah, that looks very authentic. I'm glad to see that you completely ground down the walnuts because most of the recipes out there, like the, the ones in English had like bits and pieces of walnuts. Yeah. Yeah. Like that doesn't seem right. Like I don't want to lumpy sauce, you know, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it, it's good. It's very gratifying when, when you do get comments like that. Well, by, by making it big on YouTube with a channel called middle eats, do you cool. fear that you have um, built a house for yourself? That's too, too big or too small. Like, is um, it too broad or too narrow? So, so the journey that we've been on so far has been to make um, authentic and existing original dishes as authentically as possible. So if there is a step that we don't understand, we will sometimes include it. And I know this is something that you hate, like when you, well, not hate you, but you, you like to argue against is that things that, you know, people seem to do for tradition. We tend to do them mainly because they're part of the original recipe. In the future, we definitely do want to branch out because, I mean, there is modern Middle Eastern cuisine. The food we eat isn't necessarily the food that we make right now on the channel. There are, you know, all sorts of strange things going on in Middle Eastern cuisine. You know, there's loads of Western influences in Middle Eastern cuisine as well. And so we definitely want to do things along, along like the Middle Eastern line, but maybe branch out, do more like, um, and, and, you know, the four part word is fusion here, but like do more dishes that are, you know, outside of the, the regular spectrum of Middle Eastern food. And then, like there are other things we want to do too. I mean, yeah. someone's a fantastic baker. Um, and I'm not just saying that like, you know, but people say, oh yeah, they're a fantastic baker and they make Betty Crocker stuff. She's made wedding cakes. She's made like, she made a birthday cake last weekend. She makes like loads of um, amazing She's a scientist. It's science. <laughs> it literally is. It literally is. And I think people don't realize how scientific cooking is. It's a process. It's a oh, formula. Baking in particular. You There's a reason it. I only make yeah. flatbreads because I can fake it. Like I don't need to actually know how things work. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe in the future we'd look at branching out and doing more things, maybe not necessarily under that brand name, but you know, me and Selma with our experience on YouTube, I think we could build something again. But um, now we're still just focused yeah. on the Middle East brand at the moment. But, and, and I also think that the Middle East brand, I, I think we're just scratching the surface. Oh, yeah. Like no, you could easily, you could so, fill a lifetime. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot that people don't know. I mean, we have discovered so much about Middle Eastern food by just doing that. Because all what we've known was, you know, Egyptian food. Um, a bit of Yeah, foods from the Levant. But nothing too, you know, um, detailed like, like we have been getting into. And... I think it's just amazing. We've discovered so many new dishes that yeah. just blew our minds. So, yeah. Um, well, but then the again, you're in the UK, right? So, do you ever just want to like make a shepherd's pie? Um, I mean, we don't we don't cook Middle Eastern food yeah. on a daily basis. That's not our. It's just so much work. So, Middle Eastern food is <laughs> takes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just you know. There's a lot of washing up that goes with Middle Eastern cooking. So many pots and pans, and it just takes so much time. You know, because it's just the way. Um, house or like the way things are structured you know there's always a stay-at-home mom she's always cooking all day and that's the way it is but uh we go for convenience during the weekdays or most yeah. of the time you know the only times that we used to cook middle eastern food was when we had our friends over you know reminisce feeling homesick okay let's invite everyone for a big middle eastern meal and yeah. we would be happy everyone would be yeah. happy and 
But I mean, regardless, uh, I mean, generally we we cook um, just general Western food. You know, we cook pizza, we cook pastas, we cook you know steaks. We have a steak night every month. We do we do just the regular stuff. Um, and there's plenty of people doing that on YouTube. I think with us, the the our niche is Middle Eastern food, and there aren't many channels doing what we do. Not in English, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's there's millions of them. Well, not millions, probably thousands of massive channels in Arabic, um, because it's such a big thing in the Middle East to watch food cook food videos. But um, for us, we want to really bring the Middle Eastern kitchen into you know um, the average home in you know somewhere in the US. We had <laughs> last year in the uh, Texas snowstorms, we had someone message us and say that they had cooked some Egyptian kushari, which is uh, Egypt's national dish. They cooked Egyptian kushari before the snowstorm, and they just kept eating it throughout the whole snowstorm. They had no power, and they were just eating it cold. And I found it cool because it was just like some random town in Texas or something yeah. like that, right? And I was just like, oh yeah, it's really cool. We got kushari into some random household in some random town in Texas. And I think it's it's really cool that you know we're not doing shepherd's pie, we're not doing pizzas, we're not doing the things that people generally have heard of, but then we're getting random people from all over the world cooking random dishes that you know, only a Middle Eastern yeah. would know of. Yeah. Like yeah. also the someone from Germany message saying that they um, they do molokheya, which is like a jute uh, leaf stew kind of thing. Um, what kind of leaf? Uh, jute, jute leaf. So, you know, mallow, the plant, the mallow plant, it's sure. literally the leaves of mallow. It's called Jews mallow as well. Um, and the leaves, um, or cockerus or something like that, um, the leaves are like ground, like um, chopped up really fine. And they have a almost um, okra-y texture, so it's a bit slimy, and it's made into a stew. It's eaten all over the Middle East in different ways. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of my favorite dishes, but I wouldn't have that on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so heavy on garlic, and and like it's a heavy meal. You feel bloated afterwards, but you know, I just find it amazing, and it's a lot of effort because you have to make like proper chicken stock for it, and like it takes a good three hours to make it. You know. And I just found it so surprising, you know, when, when someone was like, oh, I make this on a weekly basis now and I love it. It's one of my favorite dishes. And um, it makes me happy, you know, to, to, to raise that kind of um, awareness. Because what do people know about Middle Eastern food besides shawarma, hummus, uh, falafel, kebabs? That's it, right? I mean, those are all really good things, though. Like, don't. Yeah, no, no, they are. They are. But it, it's, it's, it, I feel like it's a, it's a label. Like this is, this is all what Middle Eastern food is Indeed. when it isn't. Yeah. I am constantly confused and delighted by the magic of kebabs because I don't understand why they're so good because it's just on a stick. Like you can cook anything like sticks. Like why, why does the, the stick onions. make it taste so good? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's the fire and the onions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, uh, there's, there's this whole technique of like making, of marinating food in onions or onion juice in the Middle East. Uh, different countries use maybe the onion pulp, the onion juice or the whole onion shredded. And it adds moisture into the meat where it doesn't dry out. Like, you know, if you cook a burger and you cook it well done, it's going to dry out. Right. Mm. Whereas, a kebab they're not really that dry so the kneading of the onion into the meat just adds moisture back in very strange i'm, I'm sure like somebody's gonna be like this isn't how it works but it gives it well, that's the really effect nice and that's texture. all that matters right yeah and you can get a really good sear and loads of meaty flavor mm-hmm. like you can do with like a burger or something like that but it's still super super moist i think that's you know the reason why it's so delicious and kebabs from different regions taste completely yeah. different yeah you know, like Egyptian kebab tastes very different than Levantine kebab, than and Iranian, than Iranian kebab, Turkish kebab, yeah. so so different. Best kebab. Ooh. 
that's okay. a tough one. If you ha- if I had to choose one kebab dish for the rest of my life, it would be um, beti kebab, which is a oh, Turkish yeah. Adana kebab, and then it's got cheese on top of it. It's put in a, dar- a flatbread, kind of like a tortilla, lavash bread, and then it's cut up into slices, tomato sauce, and you dip it in yogurt. You just take the dipped kebab. Oh, so good. It is a very good one. That sounds but- like something that would end my day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so worth it. Yeah, though. it does. It does. <laughs> it does end your day. <laughs> well, y'all are just lovely, and I'm so happy that you you're 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 finding success, and I'm 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 eating it up. Anything else that we should talk about before we say goodbye? Um, let me just think. Uh, <laughs> I guess it's just I think with us we we we're trying to just focus a a part of what we we're we're trying to make Middle Eastern culture more than just you know what you hear on the news and what what you might know about it. Um. You know, the Middle East is a really rich region with a really rich culinary history. We're talking about the Middle East and kitchen can go, is 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 written down. You know, from like there's books a thousand years old almost, uh, and and those recipes in a part still exist. So it's really cool that there's people like Max Miller on YouTube who you've probably seen cooking uh, with Max Miller. He he does a lot of historical recipes. And we're having really good fun discovering these things, rediscovering um, old foods, and you know, trying to trace things back. Um, and yeah, it's it, it's been great, you know, showing it off to people. And yeah, we hope to see more people joining and following and cooking the dishes from all over the world. Well, listeners, you know what you need to do: <laughs> Middle Eats on the YouTube. Hit them yeah. up. Yeah, that'll be great. We, we we'll have all of you there. We'll show you loads of delicious recipes, and yeah, we'll get you cooking Middle Eastern food in no time. They're the best. Subscribe to Middle Eats on YouTube. If you will be observing Ramadan coming up soon, you can get all kinds of ideas for meals to slam when the sun goes down. As I record this, they just posted a recipe called Egypt's Answer to Lasagna. It's called Macarona Bechamel, which is exactly what it sounds like. Awesome stuff. And that's it for the debut Ragusia pod. Again, if you want to ask a Q for Q&A, leave an actual review and rating for this show on Apple Podcasts and put your question in there. Feels weird to deliver a show outro without music. I have no music for this pod yet because I'm not sure if I want it to have music. My whole thing is to give you the goods without the fluff and music would be fluff on a food podcast. This is all very ironic because I am a composer by training and I originally got into radio because I thought that it would be a way for me to slip my own music into things. And then I got famous on YouTube for being the guy who does not lard up his recipe videos with music and stuff. And people would even write in the comments, oh, it's so nice that you don't use music. And so, yeah, ironic. This is the end of the show, despite the absence of music. I'm sure a tagline will develop in time, some kind of signature sign-off. For right now, I'll just say, uh, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching if you're watching. But please subscribe to the actual podcast if you're watching on YouTube. And uh, yeah, talk to you next week.